You're listening to Serious Inquiries Only. Welcome to Serious Inquiries Only. This is episode 110. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. Well, let me take you through my thought process for today's episode. I had mentioned on Facebook and other places that I had planned on talking about the book Fire and Fury because I grabbed it on Audible and uh, was listening to it. But you know, after I said that, I heard like every podcast in the world (laughs) that I listened to talk about it. And I kind of feel like it's already been covered. So I'll leave it open. I'm I'm a little over halfway through the book. I'm still going through it. It's it's interesting. I like reading it. Um, but I what I had planned to do was hit on some of the the criticism of it and the facts that that might be wrong, hit on why people don't like this Michael Wolf guy. I see people reference it, but I I don't ever see specifics, so I was going to look into that. So that's what I had thought of doing for an episode. I'm not going to do that today because I I think we might kind of be over it in terms of this book. I I think it's maybe been covered, but I I throw it out there because if you want me to do that, feel free to shoot me a message or email. I could do that next Thursday, but uh, if not, I might just let that one pass by. And then my next thought, so I had another <laughs> another idea. My next thought was the whole Oprah thing happened. And then I saw that Hassan Piker guy tweet something like, I would vote for Oprah over Joe Biden. And I, I uh, responded and I quoted it and I thought that was insane. I mean, the last thing we need is another person with no leadership or political experience. And by the way, uh, I, I don't hate Oprah or anything, but if you look into her history, she's uh, has a lot of uh, really suspect decision-making and people that she promoted and woo and all that. And I was thinking, okay, maybe this is something I need to talk about. And then I was uh, pretty heartened by seeing virtually everyone in my circles and liberal circles and Facebook and social media, pretty much everyone that I am friends with and who I listen to saying, nah. <laughs> so I, I don't think I need to cover that. It seems as though virtually everybody in my circles, the consensus seems to be, let's not do that. And uh, that's certainly how I feel. If you disagree, let me know. But uh, I don't I don't think I need to do that. I think I would be preaching to the choir. But that's when I came across something else that, of course, since you've already seen the title of this podcast, you know what it is. Just to give a very brief bio of Steven Pinker, in case you're not familiar, he's a Harvard professor in the Department of Psychology. He, uh, he specializes in psychology, a little bit of linguistics, that kind of thing, cognition. Uh, interesting guy, brilliant guy, of course. Um, as far as some context and kind of how I think of Steven Pinker, um, his work is often, his, his book, Better Angels of Our Nature from 2011, is very often tweeted at me in response to any sort of attitude that we need to improve things. So it's a common and frustrating non sequitur where, uh, and, and indeed is what you'll see when I start discussing the video, Progressives Hate Progress. The theme is essentially, why are progressives whining? Look at how good the world is. And it's just a complete non sequitur. I'll get into more of that later. But that is very frequently brought up by people like Christina Hoff Summers and and anyone who uh, wants to argue against people who want change, systemic change, that kind of thing. With that in mind, what happened was I actually, there's a, a video circulating that has been edited 
to be a little shorter and and I think a little misleading uh, of Steven Pinker. But I actually had just been on YouTube and had seen a video, you know, it suggests video for you. And and my <laughs> my YouTube can be just an absolute mess in terms of suggested videos, because oftentimes I'm having to watch these videos of shitlords and Dave Rubin and stuff like that. But I saw a video from Steven Pinker called Why Do Progressives Hate Progress? And uh, I was instantly a little annoyed at that title, but I thought, all right, well, uh, I'm going to check this out because I would love to know why. We'll get to that in a minute. But after I, I tweeted about this, someone tweeted at me, uh, Ina, actually, Ina Nice Mangoes on Twitter, tweeted at me this shorter Steve Pinker video where he seems to endorse the alt-right in some ways. And uh, then I took a look at the greater video. But that that has actually swept around. And I want to talk about that because I think it is a little unfair to uh, Steven Pinker. Since it's such a short clip, I think I'll just play it. Here's the video that was uh, edited from a, a little, not a lengthy talk, but a bit of a longer segment and this this went viral, essentially 118,000 views. I'm sure a lot of them were because of supporters, but also because of people who thought it was uh, uh, highly problematic. And this went viral just yesterday, my time. So just the 9th of January. So very relevant. Here, I'll play it for you. Often highly um, literate, highly intelligent people who uh, gravitate to the alt-right, uh, internet savvy, uh, media savvy, who... Um, often are um, radicalized in that way, who, who swallow the red pill, as the saying goes, the illusion from, from, from the matrix, when they are exposed to the first time to true statements that have never been voiced in college campuses or in the New York Times or in respectable media, uh, that are almost like a bacillus to which they have no uh, immunity. And they are immediately infected with both a feeling of outrage that these truths uh, are unsayable. So that's where it ends. And, and this went quite viral, as I said. And uh, I'm seeing a composite of some people who shared it from Jamel Bowie, 200,000 followers. He's a political commentator. Uh, Dan Errol, always <laughs> popular reference on the show. Noah Smith, someone I actually recently followed, 85,000 followers. And even Richard Spencer, who shared it as essentially, you know, Harvard Jew endorses the alt-right. I mean, I, that wasn't a joke. Like, that's that's actually how the alt-right were framing it, because they're awful. So lots of people shared that clip, and lots of people were sharing it as though this guy's a right-winger, he's endorsing the alt-right, because he said both at the beginning of the clip, he says, intelligent people joining the alt-right, and then he says, truths that they don't hear other places. And that, that's actually the part that that I have the biggest problem with. But it's important to watch the full video and get the full context because he makes it a little better, uh, but I still ultimately disagree. And the always measured and moderate PZ Myers tweeted it with, well, that settles it. Steven Pinker is a lying right-wing shit weasel. Uh, and then he, he wrote an article called, if you ever doubted that Steven Pinker's sympathies lie with the alt-right, just watch this clip. Now, it, it seems as though at the end he says there's a longer clip, like maybe he eventually watched the longer clip, uh, and he, he it doesn't really change what he thinks. I have to say, uh, I, I agree with some of the points that PZ Myers makes. I'm going to go over that, but I just have to say, I mean, I really don't think this is the best way to go about this, and I think that people who are right now complaining that 
Pinker has been unfairly maligned for this video. I think they're right. He has been unfairly maligned. What goes on to happen in the in the rest of the video, what he what he ends up talking about is that he believes that political correctness has done all kinds of harm. And it's because, as I as he already says, you heard him say, highly literate, highly intelligent people gravitate to the alt-right because they think there are these truths. And Pinker also agrees that they're truths, but he goes on to explain them later. Uh, he thinks there's these truths that don't get talked about in colleges and the New York Times. And he seems to think that these, these hyper-intelligent people, highly literate, highly intelligent people, as he said, don't have any immunity and they're infected with a sense of outrage. He doesn't really say why they don't have any immunity, but I guess it's because the mainstream voices, like, like I just referenced, the New York Times and universities, don't talk about these things enough. Now, here are the truths that he thinks we aren't talking about enough in, I guess, left-wing circles or something. First one, capitalist societies are better than communist ones. And he says, and quote, I quote from Steven Pinker, in university campuses, this would be considered flamingly radical. This is where I'm going to reference P.Z. Myers because I, I think he does have valuable contribution here, seeing as how he's a professor and spent a lot of time on campuses. He says, I don't see it, quote, quoting uh, P.Z. Myers, I don't see anyone insisting on that. Instead, I see a lot of academics who point out the flaws in capitalism, which apparently are lies and don't exist. Then he makes it worse by using more specific examples, the difference between North and South Korea. I've never met anyone who thinks North Korea is a better place to live than South Korea. End quote. Yeah, this goes with what I've experienced as well and people I've talked to. Yes, people are not too hot on capitalism. And you can definitely find some Dan Errol types who want to burn the system down, even though it's ludicrous and he has no plan. It would never happen. It's completely unrealistic. You can find those types. And I know I have some listening to the show. I know I have some strongly anti-capitalist people listening to the show. But to say that that's the majority position on campus and you're a radical if you think capitalist societies are better than communist ones, that is just not true. I mean, that that is just absolutely not true. And it's one of those straw men where you can do as PZ kind of does there. If you go and ask anyone on a college campus, hey, is North Korea better than South Korea? Or is, was West Germany better than East Germany? They're always going to answer the obvious answer that yes, the open society was better than the closed fascist communist society. This is not some secret truth. I, I think that this is an exaggeration. There, of course, there are people who point out problems in capitalism. I think there are plenty of problems in capitalism in places where markets fail us. I don't think markets are the uh, the the end-all be-all that Reagan conservatives think they are and, and a lot of modern-day conservatives think they are. But that's a, a miles away from saying that we would be better in a communist society. Here's the next thing that he says is an obvious truth, but that, you know, the left can't dare utter. Uh, he says, men and women have different preferences. And then he says, someone on this campus got fired or demoted for uh, uttering such a thing. And since he was on the Harvard campus, I actually remembered that he was probably talking about Larry Summers. So then, of course, I decided to just do a Google search. Why was Larry Summers fired? I had heard about the sexist stuff that he might have said, uh, you know, just in an offhanded way. But I Google, I was like, well, let's look this up. So I Google it. There's an incredibly well-sourced and, and detailed Quora.com article that I'm going to link you that the question is, why was Larry Summers fired as president? 
And there are several people who, who were there and who either reported on it or talked to faculty or were in the faculty who said it actually wasn't the sexist comments in 2005 about women in science. Um, it was actually because of the scandal. Now, I'm not going to go too much in detail, but there are two things. There was a scandal where he protected a faculty member from being punished for something that led to a $26 million uh, f- uh, settlement with the U.S. government. So somebody did something really uncouth, and it resulted in needing to pay the U.S. government $26 million in a settlement. It involved Russia, actually. It's, again, I'm not it's beyond the scope of this podcast, but I'll link the article and you can look into it. Very well-sourced article. Uh, and then also, Larry Summers wanted to completely change how the undergraduate process would work and like put more emphasis on different programs. So he was fired because of different reasons. And then it actually suited him and others to pretend as though and to make like it was because of these sexist comments from 2005, when actually it wasn't really. But it's a whole lot easier to play into a victim narrative of, oh, the left wing PC police are firing me. It's way easier to do that than to say, oh, I might have had a hand in some corruption and stuff. So that's obviously not going to be what he says and what people who want to defend him say. So the fact that men and women are different in some ways is not some great truth that's being shielded and uh, hidden by liberals. And if you speak it, you're going to be fired from university. That's just not true. There's often the straw man of the blank slatist that uh, these people argue against. I don't really know anyone, and, and again, I'm falling into the trap of no one believes this. I'm sure somewhere out there, there are some people who believe that men and women are exactly identical and it's all blank slate. I don't believe that. And I, most of the feminists, if not all of the feminists and people who are into gender studies and stuff that I know, don't believe that. There are definitely some differences. So as for that being something that there's no other outlet to find someone to talk about that besides the alt-right, that seems ridiculous to me. The next truth that's the the forbidden truth is different ethnic groups commit violent crimes at different rates. And he says, if you go to the CDC statistics page, homicide rate for black people is seven or eight times higher than white people. And worldwide terrorism is overwhelmingly Muslim. And before we start going off on the counter arguments to that, he actually later in the talk, and this is the whole thing that you need the full context for he actually talks about why those are misleading. So I'm just putting a pin in that now so that you don't think I'm ignoring it or something. So that that is his third truth that no one wants to talk about. And yet again, I have to say, I just don't find this to be true. I mean, if he's getting this homicide rate difference from the CDC website, I think that tells you this isn't some forbidden truth that only the alt-right will acknowledge. I, I'm not, I just don't see the evidence of that. So after this, he goes on to explain these truths, and and he does a pretty decent job of this. Uh, He does mention the fact that domestic terrorism is actually overwhelmingly right-wing right now, and it's kind of misleading to say that, you know, worldwide terrorism is overwhelmingly Muslim. He talks about some historical context for the uh, different crime rates among ethnic groups, although I, I don't think... In my opinion, he doesn't do a great job at that. He he just mentions that it could change and that, you know, there was a time when the Irish had a much higher crime rate, which, uh, you know, it's not bad, but I, I think there's also, it's a lot less passive than he makes it out to be. I mean, there are, there are systemic reasons that were justified by the government 
for, for a lot of these, these factors that play into that higher crime rate. So his overall point is there, there are these truths. And then when these, again, he says, highly literate, highly intelligent people see that the alt-right are the only people who are talking about these, then what choice do they have, essentially? And this is where I think he tips his hand, because once again, he's putting the burden on the left to do things differently. Let's say, let's just give uh, full, fully grant his premises. Let's say the left is just wrong about these things. Like the left, let's just say the left, you know, is on pretty communist and the left doesn't want to acknowledge any difference between men and women, etc. They, they, you know, violent crime. Let's say the left is wrong on those three or four issues and they're just wrong. Is the intelligent thing to do to say, okay, therefore I'm going to go over to the alt-right, which is wrong about everything and is horrendously racist and has disgusting views and anti-Semitic, all this stuff. Is that the answer? Or is the answer to say, hmm, okay, I guess the left might be wrong about these things. Let's, uh, let's, let's try to reform the left. Or even, by the way, you could also just be a centrist. You know, you could just be like, okay, I'm somebody who doesn't think the left gets this right, but I also think the right, because why do they have to go alt-right, I guess would be my question. I mean, the just the normal right has has long talked about these things as well. The normal right hates communism. They hate uh, the idea that men and women might be the same. They hate all these things. Like, the, the just standard conservatism is already fine. So why on earth are they going all the way over to the alt-right? And why is that the left's fault? Why aren't they just going to the right or to the center, as I said, libertarian? Like, how did how did Steven Pinker uh, not fall into this trap? You know, because he he's he seems to have the right view on all these facts. How did that happen? Did he have to go through the alt right first, or was he because he's an intelligent person? Was he able to reasonably say, okay, I just disagree with the left on these issues? Again, that's that's taking for granted that these are right. I, I dispute uh, a lot of parts of these, but. But just taking him at his argument, how is he able to figure out this out? I mean, it's a little bit elitist to say, well, you know, I was able to navigate this and figure out that there are these, you know, but these highly intelligent, highly literate people, they have no choice but to go the, to the alt-right. I mean, it's 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 just putting the burden on the left for the, the alt-right when actually these are people making choices and they're making bad choices. This is why I've always preferred to just talk about issues because these these things where we get into blaming one group of people for why another group of people has gone batshit crazy, you know, for like, it, it, this has happened all through ever since Trump. It's, it's always, well, it's the political correctness is pushing people over to, to what? To insanity, misogyny, racism. I mean, that, that, how, how could you possibly say that that's a, a, a fair response? And so ultimately it's, it's reductive. It comes down to, I think the political views of one group of people uh, are to blame for the political views of another group of people. And therefore, the first group of people needs to change their political views. They need to stop being politically correct about these issues. Do you see why I see that as unfair and putting the burden on the wrong people? Because you could just make the same claim for the people on the alt-right. Okay, well, how about the solution is they decide not to have those politics? Why is it that the left has to change their politics? Otherwise, the alt-right is going to have these politics. That's just not how it works. Why don't we instead have a debate about issues and, and then try to reach people that we think are wrong? So that about sums it up. And that's, that's why, again, I don't think he's sympathetic to the alt-right. I don't think it's fair to say he's an alt-righter. I don't even necessarily think 
it's fair to call him right wing or right wing sympathetic, but it's it's just this bias that I've seen lately that is a bias toward wanting to find reasons to criticize the left. And the thing that's interesting is I had some people, as always, uh, I use Twitter to kind of gauge the center lord reaction to stuff. And many of the reactions were, I can't believe you're not listening to this brilliant liberal Steven Pinker, uh, Thomas, you moron, and stuff like that. And it's it's funny. I was like, yeah, okay, I doubt, yeah, I guess he is a left winger. He just has falling into that same kind of Sam Harris thing. And then I did some research. It turns out he wrote of himself in the New York Times in 2009, been a few years, but he wrote this of himself. Uh, One of the perks of being a psychologist is access to the tools that allow you to carry out the injunction to know thyself. I have been tested for vocational interest, uh, intelligence, personality, uh, let's see, and political orientation. And he says, neither leftist nor rightist more libertarian than authoritarian. So he's a centrist. He's essentially a libertarian in most ways. And the, the, what's very frustrating lately in the skeptic movement and in a lot of our dialogue is somehow a bunch of people have decided that libertarians are liberal. And this is just not true. There are certain overlaps. There are certain views uh, that that libertarians and liberals might share. Off the top of my head, maybe being anti-war is usually uh, they're an- both anti-war. Uh, they're usually both pro-legalization of certain drugs, and they're usually both pro-gay marriage. It is no coincidence that those are the things that Dave Rubin always mentions when he tries to make like he is a liberal. Those are that that's pretty much the overlap. There might be a few other issues. And of course, the more we drill down into detail, maybe we'll find some more. But then there's issues where libertarians overlap with conservatives. There's a lot of issues. And then so 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 far, it's like, okay, maybe they're sort of somewhere in the center. Then there are issues where libertarians are actually further right than conservatives. Libertarians don't want to have driver's licenses often. They don't, they're extremely against any sort of regulation, which is a, a far right thing, right wing thing to do. They're, they're often uh, w- far and away against gun control, even sensible gun control that uh, conservatives would agree with. They're against, as I said, you know, regulating pollution, right? You know, that kind of stuff, depending. They're against the Civil Rights Act oftentimes. That's why that was a, a big subject of debate at the Libertarian Convention. Now, now, I don't know that Steven Pinker is actually a libertarian. I want to make that very clear. I, I don't know that he holds any of those nutjob libertarian views, uh, in, <laughs> in my opinion. I don't know that. But he has said in his own words that he's neither left nor right. So at the very least, he's in the center. So that doesn't mean that he's some liberal, that uh, leftist liberal that uh, is another one who sees through the PC lies and that I need to start listening to because I always reject liberals due to purity. No, he's he's not a liberal. He's he's like in the center. And that's in the most generous reading. He might be a libertarian. Yeah, he might he just says more libertarian than authoritarian. Hard to know exactly what that means, but he's either center or he's center right because of his libertarian biases. In which case, I definitely don't have to listen to him as some liberal authority or leftist authority. I'm still going to listen to him. I, I like to listen to people and hear their ideas. But this idea that he's yet another liberal that the purity police are ostracizing, it's just not true. Now, in addition to the progressives hate progress video, which I'm going to get to, I also was watching some other videos because I wanted to get a full sense of Steven Pinker's views before I talked about him. 
And another one that I think is instructive of sort of this making of a cause out of nothing. It, it's sort of, it's useful in dissecting the anatomy of the center lord. And it's about free speech. And he gives a rousing speech about free speech as though there's people in the audience or all over society who are arguing against free speech. And you might say, oh, Thomas, but, you know, the, the PC police and the leftists on campus, they, they're anti-free speech. Well, not, not, not how he argues it. Okay, so here's the thing. There are people who think there should be more limits to free speech than maybe you do or maybe Steven Pinker does. And that's a debate to have. I think it's actually a very interesting debate. I've referenced it before, but free speech laws in, say, Australia, a little more strict than they are here. Uh, free speech laws in Europe, you know, if you can, you can possibly be uh, put in jail for denying the Holocaust. Uh, I, I don't agree with that. There's some limit, though. That there's some room for play in, like, what is hate speech? What's, what's too far? What's an incitement to violence? There's a little bit of play in the joints, and we can argue about it. But what, what Steven Pinker does, and what a lot of these people do who make themselves poster people, usually poster boys, for free speech is they give a rousing emotional uh, diatribe about the Enlightenment and how free speech was crucial to the Enlightenment. And it's crucial to science. The only way to solve anything is free speech. And they do it as though, once again, as, as though the person they're arguing against doesn't want any speech. Like, they just want zero speech. No one's allowed to talk. We all got to be silent. And that, that's never up for debate. Now, this is one of those times where I can say uh, pretty literally, I don't think there's anybody who believes there should be no speech. <laughs> I'm pretty sure nobody believes that. So the actual discussion to have would be, well, how, how restrictive is it if you want to make your hate speech laws a little more strict? Now, I know Americans always balk at that, but keep in mind, I, I have quite a few European, Australian listeners. Keep in mind, they're kind of going along just fine. <laughs> you know, you can argue that the, these slightly stricter hate speech laws are bad, that's fine, but you can't argue that they ruin the fabric of society and there's no such thing as science or inquiry or anything. I mean, there's still a lot, plenty of great science and inquiry coming out of Europe and Australia and other places. And if you were to listen to his talk, which I'm going to go into a couple more of the points of, you wouldn't know that that's, that's the case. You would think that he, there's, there's this big movement of people who want to shut down science and philosophy and just get rid of all of it. So in this video, which I'll link, he has what he thinks is a knockdown argument, which is whenever you argue about free speech, you're already using free speech, so you lose. And, and he gives an example. He says, if someone says they think microaggression should be illegal, then you can just say, well, what you just said is a microaggression. It's hurtful and offensive. And then that person will say, well, no, it isn't because, and you'll say, ah, I've gotten you. Now you're arguing. See, that's free speech. You couldn't have done that without free speech. I win. And I think after that, you say, good day, sir. Uh, but it, that seems like, uh, oh, yeah, it's a real knockdown thing. He really, he really pwned that imaginary person. But when you think about it, it's not as though this argument actually works because we have restrictions on free speech. We've got, you know, slander, fraud, libel. We've got those kinds of things. And as soon as I bring up the idea that, hey, you know what? I don't think fraud should be legal. Uh, I think there should be a restriction on that speech. You could run the same argument. Well, what you just said is fraud. And I would say, no, it wasn't fraud. Let's talk about why it's not fraud. That's how that argument goes. There's no, 
Uh, see, you you used free speech to argue that, so therefore we can't have any restrictions on free speech. It doesn't actually work. And once again, Europe is evidence of this. Places that have slightly more strict hate speech laws, they're evidence of this. You can't just say, well, what you just said is hate speech, and then you, like, you've inceptioned them out of it, and they're like, oh, you're right, we can... What is truth? Everything's relative. I have no idea. And they do a little short-circuiting, they blow up. That's not how it works. If instead of using a straw man, you look at what an actual debate would look like. So an actual debate over free speech wouldn't be free speech versus zero speech. It would be free speech, uh, unfettered free speech, or, or, okay, we'll allow him to take the fettered free speech of America, but the, 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 the more unfettered free speech. We'll say he gets to take the American view, and then I'm going to try to say, you know what, we shouldn't allow people to deny the Holocaust. For the millionth time, I don't agree with that, but I'm taking that position, you know, devil's advocate. If he said, well, you saying that we shouldn't allow people to deny the Holocaust is denying the Holocaust, that doesn't, that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. We can have a, a debate around what exactly constitutes denying the Holocaust or constitutes fraud or constitutes slander or constitutes even microaggressions. We can have a debate about that without actually engaging in those things. And we're not, just because you want to limit free speech in some way, it doesn't mean that that makes it so all speech could be that speech. But when you bring up this little fake argument in a talk, it's a good applause line. And how how stupid is this imaginary person who doesn't want any speech? That's pretty stupid, huh? So what this ends up being, and what a lot of these free speech advocates end up being, is saying a lot of things that are so obviously true and that almost no one would disagree with, but then they're using them to argue against people who hold other positions that aren't these obvious positions. There's one thing he says in this video that I very much agree with, and I wish the people who are yelling at me on Twitter about him would would, uh, take to heart. He says we should teach people not to think of those who disagree with them as stupid or dishonest. We should teach that we ought to try to persuade each other rather than to change someone's mind through intimidation and demagoguery. Um, so Twitter trolls, I hope that you take that to heart when you're when you're trolling me for not <laughs> unquestionably accepting everything Steven Pinker says. Think think back to this quote by Steven Pinker. So finally, I want to talk about this video. Why do progressives hate progress? Such a frustrating video to me because this video, you know what it doesn't feature? A single example of a progressive hating progress. Not even joking. It doesn't feature that at all. I'm going to go through the logic of it. It's only 10 minutes, so it's pretty easy for me to just summarize. I've jotted down all the main points. Um, but but watch it for yourself. You know, make sure I'm not misrepre- misrepresenting anything, but but I don't think I am. So it's just assumed. It's never it's never proven. And indeed, what he says early in the video is he, he speculates that, that progressives must think there is no progress. And then he just proceeds to argue against that <laughs> the entire time. So... He says, man, why progressives hate progress provides no evidence that this is true. And then he says, well, it must be because they just don't think progress exists. But I argue that it does exist. And then he goes on to talk about a bunch of global measures of progress, which is it's already such a non sequitur because progressives in the in the American context which is clearly what he's talking about and what Christina Hoff Summers is talking about, what everybody who tweets this at me is talking about. They're talking about American progressives who want to see changes in policing and, you know, systemic racism, 
uh, in sexes. They want to see changes in a lot of these things. The global war deaths per capita is just a non sequitur. It doesn't matter that global war deaths are going down in the context of the debate over policing in the United States. It just doesn't, it's not a factor. It, does, it doesn't deny progress. It's such an obvious non sequitur that it's incredibly frustrating. Now, if the video were, why do people not recognize the progress we made sometimes? That's fine. Like, it, it is true that after 2016 and again after 2017, you know, people have a pretty negative view about the world. When he makes it into a progressive left-wing issue, it blows my mind because it's actually the opposite was true during the Obama years. The right wing thought the world was going to hell because of Obama. It was completely imaginary and made up. And then when Trump got in power, all of a sudden they thought everything was great. So if you wanted to just talk about why people, you know, why people can recognize that the world is doing better and and here are some reasons, you know, that's fine. Positive, uplifting thing. Making it this sniper attack on the left is what is so frustrating. And I, I do think it is maybe the same sort of thing that goes on with Sam Harris, which I talked about a week ago, which is this bias, like the people around them are left wing. And I, I think there might be a bit of rebellion against what's around you in a way. I think I, it's my guess. I really don't know because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. He never backs it up in the video, never backs it up. The closest he comes, and it's an interesting thing. So sorry, I'll go back into the logic of the video. He goes over these measures, global war deaths per capita. Now, a lot of people criticize him for this, like you shouldn't measure it per capita. I have nothing to say about that. I, yeah, I'm just noting it. Uh, some people disagree with that measure. But war deaths globally per capita going down. Way down since World War II, obviously. Uh, global democracy score going up. Cool. Homicides in decline. Now, this is the only one that has any bearing on the U.S. He says homicides are in decline for the United States and for the world. That's the only one. The rest are global. He says life expectancy has gone up in every region. Now, this is where I'm going to pause and note that actually U.S. life expectancy is starting to decline. And this is actually, we should be quite alarmed about this. Last year, so in 2016, they got the 2015 data. And in 2015, the United States experienced its first decline in life expectancy since 1993. And it happened again last year. So U.S. life expectancy is actually in decline. And the culprit that everyone that I'm reading is pointing to is the opioid crisis. So people are overdosing in their 20s. You know, that, that sets off the curve quite a bit. This is a big problem. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything to say, oh, globally, though, it's going up, so we shouldn't care about that. It's just a non sequitur. It doesn't matter. If you are in the U.S. and you are trying to make things better in the U.S., what matters to you is what's going on here. Next one, he says, extreme poverty globally has gone down. May, he says, someday, 2030, it might even be eliminated. Extreme poverty. Cool. That's, that's great. Air pollution since the 1970s, pollutants have declined while GDP has gone up. Protected areas have increased. So there's some good environmental news. There's also a lot of really bad environmental news, by the way. But I just want to note, who are the people who have been pushing for this? Do you think it's... <laughs> A or B, is it progressives or conservatives who are responsible for uh, the climate change problem being addressed at all? Mm, tough pick. Is it the people who for years designed, de denied it even existed? 
or is it the people who have been trying to get us to do something about it? So here's the only point he makes that can at all be construed as saying, as proving the statement that progressives hate progress. Uh, He shows a graph that shows that while the world has been getting better in all these measures, if you look at negative, like negative words in the New York Times and in world media, they've been increasing. So the news has gotten, the New York Times and world media is what the chart says, have gotten more negative while the world has gotten better by these measures. Now, that's a very interesting thing to talk about. And I think that's an interesting observation. I have no problem with, you know, writing a book on that, looking into that, giving a talk on it. Once again, framing it as the left's fault or progressive's fault is highly frustrating since, A, you, you cited the entire world media. I mean, if that's, if that's not subject to our U.S., little political oddities and biases, I don't know what isn't. I mean, it seems like if you reference world media getting more negative, then that that's not a U.S. progressive problem. But I want to emphasize, this is an interesting thing to look into. Doesn't mean, you know, I'm, I'm not fully anti Steven Pinker's work by any means. He's got a lot of great things to say, a lot of interesting things to say. If I were to take a stab at it, and he, he has a few guesses as to why this might be. He mentions availability heuristic, so uh, media increases exposure to bad things, so we essentially think things are worse because we're seeing it more, negativity bias. He's got a couple of guesses there. You know, I would frame it a slightly different way, and I would say that there's no objective reason why the way the media was covering the world 50 years ago was more objectively tied to the state of the world than it is now. Does that make sense? So in my mind, I think the world, even if it's getting better, I think there are a lot of really horrific things wrong with the world. Um, just watch Vice News, just watch just any global coverage of anything. I mean, there's there's terrorism, there's starvation, there's there's so much political unrest, there's civil wars where, it was, you know, men, women, children just getting killed. There's all kinds of horrible stuff. Now, you can say on paper it's getting better. That's good. There's still a lot of awful stuff. It may be a, an alternative explanation could be there's increased awareness of how bad things are in other places of the world. I mean, it it could be that a while back people didn't have as much access to how bad things were, and so it was inflated. It was it was more positive than it should have been, and you could recast this increased negativity is actually a return to more being reflective of reality. You could. I mean, I don't know how you would quantify that either way, but you could think of it that way. By the way, that's that's just my, me thinking it over. I, I'm not tied to that explanation. I think it's possible. I think there's other explanations. I think there is there. it could be that what he says is true, that uh, you know, negativity bias. What he says could totally be true, but it affects the whole world, doesn't just affect progressives. And here's where this video goes so off the rails and is so frustrating. It goes on to directly contradict the title and the thrust of the video because he goes on to talk about populism. He talks about these populist movements and he says, yep, here's what's happening. Uh, Trumpism, Brexit, and European populist parties are the three things on a chart. And he says... These are an old man's movement, is what he says. Populism is an old man's movement. And he says, young people don't vote. And he suggests that that's the problem, that young people are too negative about the world, so they're either not voting or voting for third parties. So that that's the logic. Now, absolutely watch this video and tell me if that's not the, the, the thinking. 
So it's progressives don't like progress, and the result of that is that old people are making really bad stuff happen because progressive people don't want to vote because they are jaded and don't believe in progress. Do you see why that's ridiculous? What about the old people who are making crappy things happen? What about them? (laughs) Once again, rather than holding non-progressives accountable, rather than holding populists accountable for their own actions, we're holding progressives accountable for, for being negative on the world and therefore not stopping the old people. Again, like, look at who you're putting the burden on at all times. Isn't it weird that the burden is always on the left, is always on progressives to do something different, and not on older people to just not give in to shitty populist movements that are lies? It really frustrates me that this this is what this video is. And trying to dismiss the title as clickbaity, it's not just a clickbait title, it's the entire underlying assumption of the video. And it's done very intentionally so that whenever anyone complains about anything in this country, then you can reference this video. Hey, things are good. Did you read Steven Pinker's Better Angel of Our Nature? You know, things are actually good. Would you stop complaining? These are, with one exception, as I mentioned, with one exception, all of these measures were global. Imagine if we did the same thing to the uh, to the campus craziness people, of whom, by the way, Steven Pinker is is pretty much one of them. He's a little moderate, but he still thinks there's a campus PC issue. Now, what if I go to the the people who are talking about the campus craziness on the left, and I say, would you relax? You're, you're complaining about this attack on free speech and campus craziness. Did you know that global poverty is doing way better than it had been? Well, why don't you just shut up about whatever you're complaining about? It's a non sequitur. Or if they said, you know, the left, the campus left is a threat to democracy. And then I said, did you read Steven Pinker's book where he talked about global democracy is, is better than ever? What are you complaining for? Would you stop it? Boy, why do you centrists hate progress so much? This is really what people do. They've been arguing with me uh, all day on Twitter about how obviously progressives deny progress because they, they won't even acknowledge the racial progress. When ta Coates writes about race, he won't even acknowledge, doesn't care about all the progress we've made. What does this mean? Can someone translate this to me? I said a lot of people telling me this. Is this anything other than damn kids need to get off my lawn or old man yells at class? Is this anything other than just, I'm t- I don't want to hear you complaining about something. You need to be grateful. That, that is what it is, right? Am I, is there any substance to that? What, what should ta Coates be doing? When he sees all of this injustice, what should people who write about systemic inequality, who, who said the, the over-policing, criminal justice, all this stuff, pointing out real problems, what should they be doing? In every book they write, should they start with a, you know th- two or three chapters? Now, here's the progress we've made. Here's what we've done. It's just, just not how things work. That's not how people operate. And when it comes to feminism, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, when it comes to the progressive causes, people are just trying to get back to zero. People are trying to get back to like even Steven. We're a long way from 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 that. You know, there was a piece on the New York Daily News by Sean King from July 5th. I think I might have referenced it on the show, but it was very brilliant. It's called Here's Why the United States is Not the Best Country in the World. And he lays out all these reasons. There are so many. Criminal justice, life expectancy, healthcare crisis, um, education. Is it, we're no longer leaders in education, income inequality, quality of life in the United States, 
uh, and of course, human, <laughs> horrible human being is present. He has all these well thought out and sourced arguments for why, hey, we're not the best country. So when progressives want to do something to try to make it better, it's a non sequitur to say, well, if you read Stephen's book, then you'd know that air pollution is a lot better in the world and homicides are down in the world and globally there are more democracies. It would, it, non sequitur. It's even worse when just two years ago when Donald Trump was campaigning, he was entirely campaigning on the America sucks. It's the worst country now. We don't win. We're terrible. We're like five minutes away from an entire campaign that was Donald Trump saying Obama has ruined the world. Everything has gone to shit. Every deal we've signed is bad. Everything is horrible. And Hillary having to defend and say, no, actually, um, things are pretty good, but we can do better. All right. Well, I won't belabor it any longer. I think I've made the point. Came across something really interesting in in the research for this episode. Actually, a couple of things I want to share. I didn't end up wanting to go into depth on them, but in the question of, uh, you know, these truths that are uh, outlawed on college campuses, I was researching, you know, how liberal and, and actually I was going to try to look into, can we quantify if there's a bunch of communists running around colleges, college professors? And uh, I, I didn't come across much, but I did find a really good article on Inside Higher Ed that talked about all these measures of how liberal um, professors are. And yes, university professors are liberal, but um, actually, if you survey faculty, 46% categorize themselves as moderate and 44% categorize themselves as liberal and uh, conservatives are 9.2. So yes, far and away more liberal than conservative, but actually more moderate than liberal. That I thought that was interesting. The article also mentioned several studies people tried to do to see if there's some bias in hiring, to see if like people are keeping conservatives out. So they did some resume studies where they uh, sent the same, you know, the usual thing, sent the same resume, but they mentioned, uh, you know, worked for the Bush campaign or work, something like that. And they actually found no evidence of it. They found uh, very, very minor, not statistically significant results on that, which is funny. I would have been prepared to accept that data either way, though. I mean, I, I would have been prepared to say, OK, it looks like liberals are keeping conservatives out because it just it is an overwhelming discrepancy. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was just some hiring bias, but they actually uh, no, they didn't find some. It, it seems like now my theory is that uh, the truth has a liberal bias. That's that's been my theory. And I think when there are people who do things like study history, history has the biggest liberal bias in terms of the ratio of liberals to conservatives. That's interesting. When you study history, uh, you, you might become liberal or when you study humanities, when you study social science, you might become liberal. It's just, I, it just seems consistent that that might be something that happens. So in closing, I just want to say I've been thinking a lot lately about how how do we repair our dialogue or how if that's even what it is, how do we make dialogue happen? How do we repair our discourse? Because I just feel like we're not precise. When respected people are calling Steven Pinker alt-right, it's just not precise. Now, there is it's the same thing that happens with Jordan B. Peterson. People call him alt-right, and it's it's not really true. Now, it is true to say that there's a that that people in the alt right often reference the work of Jordan B Peterson and actually Steven Pinker because they like to use the you know progress argument to argue against progressives and i think there are important reasons 
why that is, and they're valid to point out. But it's still it's still different to say people on the alt-right like a person's work, and that person is actually alt-right. Because, because as much as I disagree with Steven Pinker, I think if you put to him the tenets of alt-rightism, uh, I don't think he would agree with them. And I, I don't I don't think we're solving anything by lumping people into these categories. Now, if someone is that, <laughs> and if someone does say things that make them a Nazi or make them a white supremacist, or you know, that's that's fine. But uh, in the case of Steven Pinker, mainly what's happening is he thinks there are truths that liberals won't speak. I think he's wrong in that. I, I don't really think that's true. I think there's sensitivity around issues, sure, but it's not as though they're these hush words that you can't talk about. I think you can talk about them in the right way, in the right context. And that's something, so that belief, that conspiratorial kind of belief that there are these PC truths or untruths, I guess you would call them, that you just can't dare to utter, that's something he does share with people on the right and the alt-right, but I don't think it's fair to call them alt-right. That's not fair at all. So I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to get all centrist or horseshoe theory on you at all. But I do think when it comes to how we're communicating, the communication breakdown and the communication hostility, I do think is apparent on both sides. I think that the data shows that the most divisive people are old conservatives. And we just we just don't even talk about that oftentimes because they don't count. They're not in college and they're not online a lot. So we just don't we just don't even count them. But who is online is younger people and and uh, it's they tend to fight on both sides, tend to uh, fight, tend to jump to conclusions and all that. Um, I, of course, I do think that uh, as as for who's more open minded, I still think the left is more open minded. But I'm willing to concede I've seen I've been around the block on the Twitter machine so much now that I've seen all the bad examples of people on the left. There's plenty, plenty of bad examples of people arguing in bad faith. Uh, if people getting things wrong, if people name calling inappropriately, it'll exist. If you're out there online, someone on the right will throw it at you as a reason why, you know, the whole left sucks. Um, they're wrong, of course, to say that. But I, I don't think we can be naive about the fact that there is a communication breakdown. It's affecting everybody. But what the part that everybody leaps to, the part that I, I think Steven Pinker le leaps to, I think the part that Sam Harris, to a certain extent, leaps to, is to, and I think David Smalley, definitely, this, this is actually signature David Smalley problem, is to say both sides sometimes yell, sometimes call names. That means the right answer politically is in the middle. That's completely bullshit. Uh, politically, it's no question to me which side has the better solutions, which side has the actual data, which side, you know, it's, it's not even close. Um, politically is a different story from like communication-wise, what might be happening. There are problems on, on both ends there. So we need to try to fix that. I want to try to do my part. I know I've, I've done my part to be a bad communicator in the past, and I'm try, I want to try to do better. It's something that I, I just don't know how we ever fix it, you know? And it actually goes a bit hand in hand with the conversation with Tom. Um, you know, this dialogue that we're having online, it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. What do we do about that? I, I don't know. Can we do anything about it? Uh, I don't know, but I, I intend to try. And in, in that spirit, I mean, if anybody disagrees with me on my uh, Steven Pinker analysis, either way, if you think I've not been hard enough or too too hard on him, 
uh, I'm happy to talk to you. So feel free to send me an email or something. I, I, I do want to have the dialogue. Hey, I do have an announcement, though. If you didn't see on Facebook, there is a group in Milwaukee that's trying to do a, a better job of putting on a conference. They are made up of a few people who left the disgusting, horrible Mythicist Milwaukee group, and they're trying to put on their own thing. And there's a Indiegogo uh, to try to make it happen. It's you know, about 22% of the way there, I guess. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Uh, let's try to make it happen. There's going to be in the lineup, Willander Ra, Arn Ra, me, Callie Wright, Alex Jules, Seth Andrews, Jason Love. Uh, so good lineup. And any any uh, proceeds they make is going directly to Rain, uh, Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. So it's a cool thing. I just wanted to give them a plug because they are trying to sort of reclaim <laughs> the Milwaukee area skeptic community in the name of humanism. Uh, it is the Milwaukee Humanists is the name of the group uh, instead of shitlordism. So I think that's a good thing. And I think we should support people who are trying to do the right things. Speaking of people doing the right things, I've got some supporters to thank over at seriouspod.com support. I think a lot of people enjoyed the extra content with Tom uh, from Monday. There, That's a whole extra, you know, 30, 40 minutes of interview just for the supporters on the website, seriouspod.com support. And my new patrons are Cathal Cooney, Quentin, Math Makes Sense, I agree, Taylor Carr, Astronomy is Looking Up, <laughs> Visit Skydive Orange, Virginia's premier drop zone, tell him Eli sent you. That's not Eli Bosnick, but I mean, either way, Eli. Levi, Teresa Gomez, Yodel Mountain Brewmaster, <laughs> Londa Noki. Christine, Trump is making me go crazy and you're all coming with me. <laughs> Sam Harris had his brain completely replaced with just white matter. <laughs> Gwyn Richards, Ashley Beasley, Andy Snyder. I'm sure I'll think of something witty after I hit the register button. Cone Man the Bong Barian. <laughs> uh, I need more time to think. <laughs> Christopher the Ex-Shitlord. Oh, congratulations, Christopher. I, I appreciate that. Mrs. Serious Pod and Opening Argument Smith's Mom. Uh, thanks, Lydia. Chad Trait. Uh, NZ Tim. Support basic science research. Russell's Barber, Colette, Christian, and Joe Thornton's beard. <laughs> yeah, Joe Thornton's beard, part of it got torn out. The fight with Kadri the other uh, game. I can, now I'm blanking what team that is, but I don't know if you're a supporter of that, that team or I uh, just wanted to make me chuckle with a Joe Thornton's beard reference. But either way, I love it. Thank you guys for being new patrons. That's really awesome. I hope you enjoy that bonus stuff like I was telling you about. More bonus stuff to come. And now I've got to thank my top patrons, my all-time greats, and they are Scott M., John, Karen Sheets Soul, Emily Gallus, Corey Johnston, host of the Brainstorm Podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic, James Hamblin, Andrew the Waddington, Left at the Valley Podcast, Luke Voucher, Marco Rosano, yes, the Marco Rosano, <laughs> Just listen to the Wayward Willis podcast already. Marcel, longtime patron, first time member. Ooh, I love it. Hire new grad, Lucas at offworldstudios.com for front end web dev in SF. Well, there you go. Michael Schaefer feels free to put in a funny message. Chooses not to. <laughs> NZ Tim, the guy who nitpicks your discussions with Aaron Rabbi, Zabby, and Jay Aldenwald. Thank you guys so much. You are making the show happen. I truly mean it. Thank you. That's it for me. Thank you so much for listening. And by the way, Monday, I am planning to do a little uh, opening arguments on serious inquiries only. A little crossover. We haven't done it in a long time. 
But Andrew, I believe, if all goes according to plan, is going to be breaking down the James Damore lawsuit for us. Uh, I thought it would be cool to do on this show because I interviewed James Damore on this show. Uh, and there is so much in the news that, seriously, Andrew is so hardworking. I, I really do appreciate him a lot. He's busy <laughs> being ready to to answer all the top questions about this crazy news week. There was a lot of legal stuff from the uh, cease and desist letters and all, all that kind of stuff. But he is kind enough and hardworking enough that he's going to come on the show to break down the James Damore lawsuit. I can't wait. I'm really excited about it. So I will see you on Monday. <laughs>